Hi, welcome to everybody. Thank you for taking time to be with us tonight. And uh, there may be a few people come in, you know, through the door, and just we'll just make sure that they are welcome, and and we'll find a chair for them as they come in. I think there's some more seating back over there, right? So we'll try to send them back that way. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're looking in 1 Corinthians now at, uh, I think I forgot to give you the title of the series. The the title I thought of of the series, if you want to write it down, you know, we we like to use alliteration. I I mentioned that, you know, the millennials uh, don't care for that so much, but I do. And uh, I just seem to fall into that thinking. But but we're we're talking about our identity as born-again Christians, right? In, In 1 Corinthians... One title, there are multiple titles we could use, right? But one title would be Characteristics of Koinonia. Okay? Characteristics of Koinonia. And Koinonia is a word, I know we don't, we're not trying to be, you know, uh, fancy uh, using Greek words, but it's a, it's, it's a Greek word that the English word equivalent to it is about five words, right? A sharing together of things in common, right? So it's easier in this case just to say in one word, Koinonia, all right? And that's that verse, chapter 1, verse 9. Remember? First uh, Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 9. We have been called into, God is faithful, who has called us into the fellowship, the koinonia of His Son, a partnership with God. That's enormous. <laughs> and, and, uh, and so we've been looking at well, what are what are the characteristics? We're, we're talking about church distinctives. What are the characteristics of born again people? Right, the church is consists of born again people. So, what are some of the characteristics? Well, the first one we saw is uh, as we're just staying with the text of First Corinthians. Right, what Paul says is that born again people are set apart for God. They're set apart for God, and he used that phrase. Remember, sanctified there. In the Lord Jesus, sanctified by faith, he uses in other places. It's because when we trusted in the Lord by faith, at the same time, God was sanctifying us. He was setting us apart for himself through the gospel, through faith in Christ. And so that's our new identity now. Our first and foremost identity even isn't whether we're male or female, right? According to Colossians, right? Our first identity is that I'm in Christ. I'm a new creation in Christ. And whether I'm male or female, bond or free, or whether I'm Irish or Italian or uh, from Guyana in South America or whatever, that that becomes secondary, tertiary, further down the list, right? The primary thing is my identity in Christ. You say, well, isn't that obvious? Beloved, it's not obvious. (laughs) We have to constantly remind ourselves of this because we don't think, the natural man doesn't think like that. Right? We don't think first and foremost of our identity as born-again Christians first. We learn by practice, we learn to start doing that, right? And we're better at it now than we were five years ago, I hope, right? Remembering that first, but... Uh, as we continue to grow in the Lord, we we get more victory in, in remembering those things. So that's the first thing we looked at. And then the second half of chapter 1, anybody remember what the, the main subject matter? We, we, we emphasize the subject of that section beginning in verse 10 down through verse 31 of 1 Corinthians 1. Jamel, this, there's a bunch of seating back over here too if you want to, you and Jamie and want to go back over there too and, and it's a comfortable couch we just promise you won't fall asleep wasn't it the wisdom of God the wisdom of God yeah the wisdom of God was there what I used was the sufficiency of Christ right but what you're saying is, is he says that Christ is sufficient because he is the power of God and the wisdom of God right that's what you're saying and that's right in what sense is Christ the power of God According to 1 Corinthians 1, 10 to 31. Right? Because we want to just stay with that text. In what sense is he the power of God? Because being born again is a new creation and that takes resurrection power. Right? To go from death to life. That's the power of God to do that. And, and Christ is the author of that. He's the author of life. 
And that's resurrection life, who we are in Christ Jesus. That's the power of God that has created that. So Christ is the power of God, and He's also the wisdom of God. In what sense is Christ the wisdom of God? Very good. Good, Johnny. That's one, one of the things he mentions there. Through the crucifixion. Through the fact, the message of the cross. The wording he uses in 118, right? That the wisdom of God is demonstrated because God uses something to save us that the world never thought of. And he'll come back to that again here in chapter 2 tonight. What else would be another way that Christ is the wisdom of God? Because it's through Him, remember, He is the truth. I am the truth and the way and the life, right? And so all truth concerning the identity of God, concerning God's attributes, concerning God's purposes and plans for this world and the next world, and all of that we know through Christ. So He's sufficient then, isn't He? We don't need to look for another. We don't need to say, Christ plus human philosophy. We don't need to say Christ plus the prophet, uh, whatever the ones the Mormons use, Gabriel or whatever, <laughs> Joseph Smith's prophet. We don't need Christ plus Mohammed. We don't need Christ plus anyone, right? That's what sufficiency means. We can be content in Him and learn Him and grow up into Him, as the phrase goes in Ephesians 4, right? growing up into Him who is the head, Jesus Christ, the head of the body, right? That's what we're about now, okay? Well, now we move into chapter 2, and in chapter 2, really chapter 2, verse 1, all the way down through chapter 3, verse 4, is, is I would say, the unit, and, and the subject will change in verse 5 of chapter 3, and we'll look at that, Lord willing, tomorrow night. But in chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, down through 3, 4, here I would I would continue this, the uh, subject in this way: spirit enabled growth. Okay, the subject he's talking about here, he's talking about another characteristic of koinonia, another characteristic of born again Christians, and these are fundamental things that the Corinthian Christians needed to know, and we need to know too, right? So we need to know we're set apart for God. And He took the initiative to do that, right? And we need to know that Christ is sufficient. And that enables us to feel content. It gives us peace. It helps us to praise and worship. The Lord's Supper becomes much more meaningful. All those things that flow out of that. And then, now we have the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, stands out in chapter 2. Spirit-enabled growth. So, the implication is that God, may we say, expects His people to grow. Right? Is, that, is, that all, is it unfair for God to expect something from His children? No, I don't think it is. <laughs> Not when He's given us everything we need for life and godliness through Jesus Christ. And so that's what He's going to talk about here. Still in the context, though, of this picking up on that wisdom of human philosophy he talked about there in chapter 1, right? So Paul says in verse 1, And I, brethren, and I, tells us continuation, right? He's really dealing with the same subject matter he introduced already in chapter 1. This is continuation. Chapter 3 will continue that. And I, and I, brethren, speaking of himself, when I came to you, when I came to Corinth, I did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. So he starts with a negative, doesn't he? I came to you, but I did not come to you, he says, with excellency of speech. That word, it could be translated superiority of speech. I didn't come in this kind of high-minded idea like, like human philosophers do. If, if you read them, and I'm not encouraging you to read Aristotle or Plato or Socrates, or, but those were the, the, the three great philosophers in the first century Greece, and it's still true. If you took a course on, they, they still call them the classics, right? 
In university, you take a course on, they'll say, well, you take a course on the classics, you're going to study at least Aristotle, Plato, and Socrates, the three Greek, great Greek philosophers. And they used big words and high-minded terminology as they explained their philosophical system. But we got more seating over there, brethren? Yeah. So I tell you, there's more seating back over there. Some good, comfortable seating over in this room. Thanks for coming. And so Paul says he's distinguishing and by him using this method, we need to use this method when we share the gospel too, okay? So this, this is very practical. Paul's not only reminding the Corinthians of these things and really correcting them a little bit, right? Because they have this problem with divisions and the divisions always come when men exalt themselves. And that has been a problem in the history of the church down through the centuries, right? That men exalt themselves even in theological systems, right? You know how they can say, well, I'm the author of dispensationalism. Well, there's no one man who's the author of dispensationalism, number one, anyway, even though certain men may, may want to claim that title. If anybody's the author of dispensationalism, it's Paul! <laughs> Because after all, I believe that dispensational thinking is the thinking that's presented in the Bible, right? But it, but we don't, you know, the whole Calvinism thing that splits churches, that's following a man. We don't follow Luther, we don't follow Calvin, we don't follow Darby, we don't follow any man, we follow Christ. And the Apostle Paul we can follow because he does say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So we could put the Apostle Paul, but that's the only one we could put there. We have scripture for that one. So that idea of, of men exalting themselves still splits churches. I heard of that. I was up in Georgia a few weeks ago, and they were telling me of a church that split over Calvinism just a few years ago. And I thought, you've got to be kidding me. That's still happening? Still happening. And so we, we want to be careful that we're students of the scripture. We follow the New Testament. We learn from the New Testament. That's not to say that we can't get benefit from the writings of men and commentaries, okay? But they're always secondary to the Word of God. We come to the Word of God first. We validate our understanding and our theology from the Word of God first. And the commentaries are just a tool that can be helpful. Can be. They can also be a distraction. So Paul says, I didn't come to you that way. I wasn't trying to make you some sort of a, a, a sectarian or a cultist. I was trying to bring you the testimony of God. He used that now. Some of your versions may have, I think the New American Standard, the, the minority text calls it the, uh, the mystery of God there. So martyria, mysteria, they're, they're, they're very similar words in the Greek. And they're basically, even in the English, the testimony of God is the gospel. The mystery of God is the gospel. I mean, it's, it's New Testament teaching. But he uses the same idea of testimony in chapter 1, right? Verse 6 that we saw on Sunday. The testimony of Christ. And now he calls it the testimony of God, which is kind of neat, because there's a link here to the deity of Christ. The testimony of Christ and the testimony of God are the same, aren't they? Aren't they? <laughs> yeah. So it's a testimony to the deity of Christ too in, in kind of a subtle way that Paul's doing that. For I determined, verse 2, not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now that has been, that verse unfortunately has been a little bit distorted by some, I think, into saying, and again, it's, it's adding something to Scripture that's not here. But maybe you've heard the thinking that, that some have said, well, Paul had just had a really bad... Come on in, y'all. He, he had a really bad experience in Athens, right? He went to Mars Hill, and basically, we only read of one conversion, right? Dionysius, the Areopagite. And so he came to Corinth next, and he's by himself, remember? Because he's left a, his, his uh, missionary team back in Thessalonica. And he comes in there, and... And he came to Corinth, and because of the experience in Athens, he decided to change his message and his method. You heard that before? I've heard that on the radio before. He came to Athens, came to Corinth, and he decided, wow, I, I don't know, maybe I was too strong in Athens with the gospel. Maybe I need to tone it down a bit. Right? 
And they and they come to this text here, and they say, and and Paul decided that he wouldn't talk about church truth, ecclesiology, and he wouldn't talk about eschatology. The, the end times, he wouldn't talk about anything else. We, now we know Paul did that in the early churches he went to because First Thessalonians was written three weeks after he planted a new church, and they're already talking eschatology in First Thessalonians four and five. But he says. I determined not to know anything except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. What I think he's saying here is I determined that the emphasis for you Corinthians would be Christ, the message of the cross, what he says in 118, right? And that he would emphasize that primarily he's saying more about the Corinthians than he is about any anything else, I think. The Corinthians had this hang-up in human philosophy and exaltation of men, right? And they, the corollary with that, which is a form of idolatry, a corollary with that, with idolatry you always have immorality, right? And there was tremendous debauchery and immorality in Corinth, right? And the cross is the deliverance from that too, right? According to Romans 6, we understand I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. Galatians 2. And so the message of the cross helps us. That's what I think he's saying here. Well, not to the exclusion you're saying of other That's right. truths. That, what, offer that explanation again. I didn't get it. Well, why does he emphasize not to know anything? anything he, doesn't, he doesn't say anything else. He doesn't say anything else, and he doesn't say, I didn't. I determined not to speak anything else either, right? So the message of the cross, verse 18 of chapter 1, is another way of saying Jesus Christ and Him crucified, right? That He is magnifying the Lord, the person of the Lord and His work. Okay? That's not to say He didn't do that in Athens or in Thessalonica, or in Philippi, or in Galatia, or anywhere else he went. I think he did that everywhere he went. But he's, he's emphasizing that because of the condition of the Corinthians. Joe? Yeah, I think what, what he's saying to them is he's addressing all of the issues that have confused the Gospel. And he's saying, just remember, these people that are here adding things to the Gospel, adding remember to when I showed up and I came to you, I gave you the Gospel clearly and simply. So That's when he's talking to them, he's saying, remember how it's supposed to be done, this is how I did it when I came to you. Good. Not that he's even dealing with the other people. That's right. It's not even the topic of his conversation here. That's he right. Says, Don't dilute the Gospel when you give it. That's right. Good, Joe. That's that's it. That's what I believe he's saying. Everybody hear that? Yes. Okay, good. So, uh, and does that answer, Mal? Does that... Yes. Okay. He's not bringing up other subjects. It's not his topic. Right? It's right. not his topic. Yeah, he's not saying he didn't cover them. Yeah, good. I also trying to explain to the Corinthians that you know you don't need to know anything else about Jesus Christ to, to have salvation and to participate in in the religious practice of, of the new covenant. You know they didn't need the the legal system of the past. You, don't, you know you didn't need somebody a priest who knew all the rules and everything like that. That's right. You need to know what was Jesus Christ crucified. That's right, but. But he, what he, I don't think he, he's not saying. I don't think that that's all you need to know is the message of the cross, and and then you don't need to grow in other Christian truth, right? Because that's the rest of the chapter uh, would contradict that, and that's not what you're saying. But just to clearly emphasize that, because there are Bible teachers I, that I've heard that have taught it that way, and 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 said, well, then, man, let's put our Bibles. We don't need to be having a Bible study tonight. I already understand the message of the cross, right? People say. Let's just give the gospel every Sunday. We don't need to teach the rest of the Bible. Paul says he only had the message of the cross. Have you heard that? I mean, I've heard that being taught that way from this text, and that's that. You know, that is not consistent with the New Testament teaching. The New Testament teaching, as he'll say in chapter three, you're just babes in Christ, and you should already be maturing. See, I I can't even give you meat. We had good meat tonight for dinner. And and I, I if I said to Alicia, well, I can't have meat. You know, have you got some baby sauce in there that I can eat? Because, you know, and, and that's what he's saying, you know, that you've got to go beyond the basics and the fundamentals. You can't just stay a, ba a babe in Christ as a Christian. That's part of what the theme, I think, of this whole section is. So, yeah, so thanks. 
Timmy, that's right. But it starts with a clear, undiluted message of the gospel, and that's how the gospel, as both you and Joe said, should always be presented. Right? We don't make it more difficult than it needs to be as we share it with people. So he says, in addition to that, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And again, some say, well, you know, he came off that Athens experience and, was, and you know, they, they just said, we'll hear, hear you again on this matter. There wasn't a good response. So, so he was all fearful. And, and then he had that, that arrest in Philippi. He was afraid that they might, you know, try to arrest him and flog him. Paul wasn't like that. I mean, that, to me, that's reading something in the text. It's not here. He, was, he came to him in fear because he recognized the, the kind of uh, awful worldliness and immorality that was there in Corinth. And we should feel that way every time we share the gospel too. I sure do. And I think most of us do. And, and I don't, I'm not familiar with all the people that say what you're saying. Okay. That, which I'm glad of. Yeah, me too. But, but the fallacy of the, the thing that they would say that he was coming off a bad experience, Yeah, that's bad thinking. Yeah, There's nothing bad about his experience in Athens. Exactly. In fact, his experience in Athens was a good one. I think Just so. Just because a lot of people didn't get saved has nothing to do with whether he was doing God's will. That's right. He was proclaiming the gospel, and now we learn from him how to deal with people that are in that scenario. Don't expect them all to believe. No. And then, of course, that what we have recorded in Acts is what happened right at that moment. For all we know, 30 years later, there was a revival in Athens because of Paul's message. So, that's right. That It, it assumes a bad idea, and a false premise in the first place, that, that there was failure in Athens. I don't think there was failure either. And I think that Athens message is a great model for how to communicate the gospel to intellectuals that are all caught up in philosophy. But Corinth... Isn't you know they 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 aspired to that, but but they weren't so much intellectuals caught up in philosophy. They were more people, working people caught up in immorality. But they had this thing of exalting men, and that's what was causing divisions in the church, which is a characteristic of our old nature. Like we say, we still struggle with that. So he says, in my speech and my preaching, were not with, again, negative, persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. The Spirit, now he's introduced, he's already told us about the power in chapter 1, now he's added the, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And what's the demonstration of the Spirit and of power he's talking about? Somebody going from death to life, Right? Someone understanding the gospel that before, a day before, an hour before, thought it was foolishness. And now they see it's the power of God under salvation and they believe it, right? See, that's one of the treasures that you and I carry about with us every day, every moment of the day. Romans 1.16 The message of the gospel itself has power, God's power attached to it. Did you realize that? I remember when I read that, I said, well, Christ has power and the Holy Spirit has power. And, but he says in Romans 1.16 that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. See? There's power in that message. You and I carry that about because we know it. And every time we share it, if we do it prayerfully, right? Seeking the Holy Spirit to guide us and then open the heart of the person we're talking to, that's one of the things that's going to stand out in this chapter. The power of the Holy Spirit has to be with that too. And that's where this dependence in prayer comes in. That's why we pray. We don't, we don't just do it for a ritual, right? We pray because we recognize that it's God's power that's in that message and we want God's power to be at work. And by the way, every time we come to the Bible in our daily reading time, we pray for enlightenment and understanding from the Holy Spirit too because we recognize we can't this is God's wisdom this is his mind and we can't understand it without his help yeah brother Steve and the Holy Spirit brings conviction that's right you speak in philosophy all you want but God's law is written heart. the conscience is our ally within the person we're talking that's to right because it brings conviction to that person's conscience that's right because the Holy Spirit brings conviction 
then they, they're wasting, and then they come under conviction of their sin. Then they understand the gospel. We can explain somebody all day long, philosophy, but they don't come under conviction. They'll talk, we don't talk around circles all day. That's right. But if the Holy Spirit brings conviction, you see what Peter spoke, it pricks their conscience. It cut them to the heart. They all, what must we do? They were now finally, oh, we're, we're dead, we're sinners. Yes. They saw it, they realized that the Holy Spirit brought them to that point. But if, unless the Holy Spirit's in it, like you say, and the power of the Holy Spirit, to bring that conviction, where a person is really guilty before a holy God, yeah. now he understands where the gospel comes in. That's it. Well, I need some, I need some salvation now. And then we tell them who the Savior is. See, each each step works through, and we do it. That and so some of the verses uh, Steve's referring to would be in in uh, Romans chapter two uh, about the the conscience and how God works through conscience. And then in in John sixteen, remember the upper room discourse, John thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen. Well, in chapters fourteen and fifteen and sixteen, primarily we see at least five ministries of the Holy Spirit. And we should know those because because that's that's how he works in us and in others. And one of those in chapter sixteen is that he will convict the world of sin. He will do it. So that's we're dependent on him. See, like Steve's saying, we read of Lydia in Acts chapter sixteen. God opened her heart. See, and so good, good brethren, you're tracking. So the first four verses there of chapter two. I would say he's explaining the apostles' method, right? How he how he did not come and how he did come, and and of course that's part of the work that we've been called to do in share in the sharing together with God, the koinonia, the fellowship of His Son, is to share the gospel, to join with Christ in His great work of building His church. Right? What verse am I referring to? Matthew 16, 18, right? Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. That's still the great work He's doing. And that will will end when He's completed, when the last person has been added to the church and the Lord will then begin a different work in the world, slightly different. The church will be taken out. That's the work he's doing, and that's still the work we're in. So we're going to partner with him. We need to know what he's doing, right? We're going to work with him in it. And that's part of what we're talking about here in 1 Corinthians 2, right? It's, it's amazing. It's powerful that he would use us. We might say, well, wouldn't the angels do a better job? The good angels. And maybe they would do a better job <laughs> if we'll be humble about it. But you know what? God said... It's not a matter of whether they have the quality or whether they would do a better job. My plan is to use you, people. And eventually, as we see in 1 Corinthians 6, that we, people, His church, are going to be judging angels along with Christ, which means we will really be, it appears, above the angels in our glorified bodies. You see why de- the devil wants to keep us thinking we're, we're just a bunch of... Uh, rats running around the ground that don't have you know we don't if we don't think of ourselves as who we really are in Christ we won't act like that the privileges that he has brought into us that he already wants to begin in us now so then beginning in verse 5 I'm sorry that was 2 1 through 5 and then beginning in verse 6 down through verse 9 we see the mystery he's already mentioned the testimony of God in verse 1 we see the mystery unveiled or revealed, okay? So, however, verse 6, we do speak wisdom among those who are, what? Mature. Mature. What does that mean? Not <laughs> Good, brother. Someone growing, maturing. Another word you see in the New Testament, perfected, being perfected. That's the idea of growing and maturing. Right? And uh, that's what he says. So we do speak this kind of uh, uh, wisdom, but it's among those who are mature. In other words, those that, that are growing in Christ, they're spending time in the Bible and wanting to learn with a teachable spirit, a teachable heart. He says, but that wisdom that we're, that we're given is not the wisdom of this age. Right? 
There is a wisdom in this age, right? The world thinks it's very wise. The whole evolutionary hypothesis is part of it. The whole civilization basis, the whole structure, infrastructure of governments. And man is very proud of what he's done technologically. And there have been great achievements by humankind, right? God doesn't set that aside. He enabled that. But unfortunately, that's led to a wisdom of this age that thinks, man, we can do this without God. We can bring world peace without God. They still believe that, beloved. And that too. That's why it says not many wise in this world. That's right. God, we just—you can't quite figure everything out. There's some part you have to accept by you, because God bears witness to our spirit. This is true. We bear witness. You can talk somebody's mind into something. You can talk them right out of it. Yep. But when you know in your heart that something's true, you can't talk somebody out of that. Yeah. But uh, we have. But you know, it, it, it's, it's a joy to read through this and go through this study because you see what Paul's. Going right back down to the basics again, say, hey, listen, just like it talks about Hebrews, let's go back. Yeah. We need to go back to the foundation again. Let's go back because I can't get anything else. Yeah. You wake, wake up. Exactly. <laughs> what he's doing here, so. Exactly. So the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. Uh oh, they don't, they wouldn't think that. They. <laughs> The rulers of this age think they're really coming into their own, don't they? But they're coming to nothing. And that's the saddest thing about what is happening in this world, isn't it? All these people who think they're very... And they're... I'm not discounting their abilities, right? Let's not... I'm not mocking that. They have tremendous intellectual abilities. Great technologies have been developed. But you know that? All that's coming to nothing. God's going to bring that all to nothing. The only thing that's going to survive is going to be souls, people, and the Word of God. It's all going to be burned up. But they don't know that. And they don't believe that. Because they've been deceived by their own wisdom and speculation and philosophy. See? I had to learn all that stuff in school too, you know? Sociology, anthropology, philosophy, psychology, all that stuff. It's all scientific explanation of the creation that's around us without God. I mean, God's taken totally out of it. We're going to explain it, but not without, not with God in it. We don't want God in any of this. And He's the author of all of it. I mean, it, it's ridiculous once we understand from the spiritual wisdom of the Bible. He says, but we do speak the wisdom of God, but that wisdom in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for whose glory? For whose glory? Would you have expected that to say for His glory? I would have. But He changes the pronoun. He says, for our glory. For our joy, boasting, praise of Him. See, He thought of this before the creation of the world. He planned this. See, for you and me and others who are going to come into the family of God. But why does he call it a mystery? The wisdom of God in a mystery. Now the mystery of the Bible, we've, we've taught this before, and you've probably heard it many times, but just to reinforce it, the mystery in the Bible isn't a whodunit kind of mystery, right? That's how we use the English word today. The Greek word mysterion, that is a transliteration, they just transliterated it into the English word, it's spelled the same way almost, It's the idea of a truth not previously revealed. So the truth was there in God's mind, but it hadn't been previously revealed. And then suddenly it is revealed. That's the mystery he's talking about. It's called the mystery of the church, the mystery of Christ. Right, the, the studies of the mysteries are in the New Testament are fascinating. Today, when you study it, 
and some of the treatments I take with cancer actually are actually tweaking some of the things in the cell. That's exactly so right. You, can, you know, so man can see these things, but you've got to put them there. It's the things that we don't see that put them there. We can never quite, yeah. with our visual, understand it. So that's where the faith and God's word comes in. He speaks to us. We know his voice. We hear it. The Lord is true. So uh, we, we don't have to, you know, think about the end of the universe. A mind can't think that. Mm-hmm. He doesn't give us the ability to understand what a mind he has with our heart. Yes. And that's what he speaks to. He wins our heart. That's right. And that's what we're talking about. Amen. Amen, Steve. So the wisdom of God in mystery is uh, specifically a reference to the church? Well, I think it's the whole purpose and plan of God based on, as we'll see in the context in the rest of the chapter. That's how we would want to define that, right? Based on it, the context in the chapter. So I would say it includes the church, but everything. Beyond the church, too. The whole plan and purpose of God. Because he'll go on to say here uh, in verse 9, but before we get there, verse 8, which none of the rulers, this wisdom in the, the mystery of God, the wisdom of God, none of the rulers of this age knew it. For had they known it, they would not have crucified. And this is one of the few times in the Bible, this title of the Lord of Glory. That, that of is a genitive, probably a possession or a description. So he possesses glory, but you could uh, translate it the glorious Lord. Think of what he's saying. The rulers of this age crucified the glorious Lord, and God let him. Pretty staggering statement. That's part of the mystery of God. He said, the rulers didn't know this or they wouldn't have done it. They would never have crucified him. But they didn't see what they were doing. They didn't see who he was. They didn't see the plan of God because they weren't interested. They they defined their world system another way, like Steve said, through human speculation and philosophy. But as it is written, another quotation from Isaiah, by the way, there, there are several of them in these first chapters of 1 Corinthians I, 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 this is a quick diversion quick diversion but I, I got the chance to finally meet John MacArthur uh, last weekend in Houston he was there for a conference and and I you know he was one of the ones I started listening to before I got saved and when I got saved so for over 30 years and and he had told us that he had finally finished preaching through the New Testament verse by verse <laughs> it took him 42 years <laughs> And and he said, now that I've done that, he said, you know, maybe I've finished my journey. I don't know. And so I I went up to him, got his autograph to talk to him. Really, is that? <laughs> yeah, man. I shook his hand, got a picture with him, and all that stuff. Okay, I'm a groupie. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, I would never do that. <laughs> I know, Joe. <laughs> but anyway, I said to him, I just felt led to say to him. Uh, I said, John, he gave a message, and one hour message on Isaiah 53 that was one of the best messages on Isaiah 53 I've ever heard. You probably listened to it on the internet. It was just fascinating. Fascinating. The whole place was just, you could hear, heard a pin drop. And I mean, man, the man's in his 70s, and he's still... But anyway, I said to him, I said, John, I, I wish you would... You would Maybe I said Brother John or Pastor John, you know, <laughs> talking to him like he's my buddy, right? But but uh, I said, you know, I'm, I'm kneeling down next to him. We're, we're at a pastor's breakfast, and, and and I said to him, I wish you would consider doing a, one more commentary, one on Isaiah. I said, you mentioned several times in your message how important. He said, Isaiah is really the fifth gospel. And he said, and, and he talked about the importance. I said, and Isaiah being that the Lord put it at the front of the prophetic books, the other 16 prophetic books, there are 17 prophetic books, right? And the other 16, they all use terminology that appears in Isaiah first. So you can get Isaiah in 66 books, and 66 chapters, which parallels the 66 books of the Bible. It's divided the same way, 39 and 27 and so forth, like the Old Testament and the New. I said, that may be your life work, brother. And he just looked at the floor and, and hey, he was thinking about it. We'll see. I, I heard that, that message. You did? I did. I mean, on tape. Yeah, on tape. that's good. So it is available. Okay. It is. It all What's fascinating about his study of Isaiah is, is you, know, you don't think about this, but the whole book of Isaiah is a backward look from the 
end times. That's his main point. Because what he says, who has believed our report? You know, at the very beginning of it? Yep. And his whole point of it is, what it is is, the Jews looking back from the time of the tribulation to understand, finally, right. the report that they didn't believe. Right. And I never realized that. I always Me thought either. Isaiah 53. It is a prophetic book talking about the future of Israel looking back to the time Christ. Right. And and he's and where we know that Israel does that as a nation is Zechariah chapter twelve, when they look on him whom they pierced, right? After the whole world has turned against them and Jerusalem has been ransacked, the poor city of Jerusalem is going to get ransacked again, and the women are going to be ravished and it's going to be bad. But in the end it's going to bring them to the end of themselves as a nation, the remnant that's left, and they will look back and then they will they will Sing or or verbalize Isaiah 50. I agree with you. They will mourn as for an only son. Zechariah tells us. So I I agree with that. I think that's a tremendous. Uh, so anyway, that that was just a diversion. But maybe I won't take credit for it. I promise. If he comes out with a commentary on Isaiah, <laughs> but but I think it would be a real asset. And and with all his the detailed study he has of the New Testament. Uh, he, he told us how many times Isaiah has quoted the New Testament. It's amazing. I, I didn't write it down. But anyway, here's one. As it is written, this is one of the greatest statements in the New Testament. Think about what he's saying. I has not seen, nobody's ever seen, nor has anybody ever heard, nor has ear heard, nor has it even entered into the heart of man. Think of all the great philosophers, all the great rhetoricians, the speakers and the things that God has prepared for those who love Him. He has prepared things for those who love Him. Now he could have said the God, the things God has prepared for Christians. Or he could have said for believers. But he purposely says for those who love Him. Because He loved us first. He said, well what are these things? Well, that's what he's part of, is what he's going to go into. But, and that's what Mal Malcolm's question was. But I think it includes the church, but it's much more than that, isn't it? It's the whole age to come, the new heavens, the new earth. I mean, all of this. This is our inheritance. This is our posterity. He prepared that for us, for our glory. And when we think about that, the things of earth will grow strangely dim, won't they? And we have to constantly remind ourselves of that in the eyes of His glory and grace. So this is what God has in mind. But, he says, beginning in verse 10, and that I think I, say, I see that as a little bit of a subsection change. Verses 6 to 9, I said the mystery unveiled or revealed. It's, this is apocalypsis. It's the same word, revelation. Apocalypse. And then verses 10 to 16, dependence upon the Spirit. The Spirit is the enabler to understand these things that God has prepared for them that love Him. But God, verse 10, has revealed them to us through His Spirit. Now this is what John the Apostle writes in John 14 and 15 and 16 in the Upper Room Discourse, right? That God, the Lord says, I will not leave you orphanized. Is, is the direct translation. I will not leave you orphans when I depart. I will leave the Comforter, the Helper, the Paraclete. Those are all the same words for the Holy Spirit, right? And He will do what? He will show you the things that I've been teaching you. He will illuminate your heart and your mind to understand. See? That's power, isn't it? The power of God. And that's why... We pray. We say, Lord, you know, why Malcolm prayed before we studied. Because we may still get value without the prayer, but we definitely won't get as much of the value as we would if we said, Lord, please bless this study and open our hearts up, right? Because we can't get this without you. Why wouldn't we want to ask him? It's part of the whole love relationship, right? So God's revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit, now he's going to give us some interesting biblical insight into the heart and how the heart and mind work. For the Spirit searches all things, 
Yes, the deep things of God. That's part of the mysteries, right? The deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Right? The spirit in man, it helps us in our understanding. This is what this verse is telling us. Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Can I go a little bit over 8 o'clock, brethren? I, I didn't realize it's already 8 o'clock. Can I go a little bit longer? I'm gonna go, I don't wanted to get through the whole chapter, but I'll, I'll have to race through. We'll eat faster when we get... You brethren have been so kind to bring food. So let me just... I'm just going to work through this real fast. If you're taking notes, you can write things down or just listen. But... But what, just, just to ask a question, in the point of verse 9, that, you're saying that's a quote from Isaiah. Right. So that's saying uh, eye, heart, uh, ear, that's all natural. Uh, you know, we, apart from the Spirit, if you would quote verse 10, is that the point of that verse? No. Uh, well, with verse 10, I mean. Huh? He's, he's contrasting. No, no, I don't think I don't think he's saying that uh, he's saying that the heart, mind, you know, you know, the, the, the spiritual understanding that that men lost men haven't come to understand it. They they have a spirit, but they haven't come to understand the well, purposes a, of a natural wisdom or natural understanding can't get it apart from the spirit of God. Spirit yeah, of God. that's right. Yeah, that's what I would say. But I would say I, I thought you were saying just the physical eyes and ear. It's the idea of, of the. Uh, the understanding inside too, the eyes of the heart. But in the, the natural man, it's all about, he says in the Greeks, it's a soulish man. That's right. The soulish man is our, our intellect, all those things which are basic. The spiritual man is the one who reveals everything, as the Holy Spirit reveals it and teaches our soul. That's right. the other way around. That's right. We let the Spirit and not our mind leave. Exactly. That's got to call us, we're to actually yield our Amen. Amen. That's exactly right. It starts with the wisdom. The concept of wisdom. He's not. He, what he's saying is he's defining the wisdom that we have, and he's saying it's not man's wisdom. Right. It is. It is wisdom. It is true wisdom. It's not just some ethereal spirit thing. It That's is real right. information, but it is true information about the depth of what's coming. Exactly. In all aspects. Exactly. That we would never be able to figure out no. or understand without God showing. Exactly. In other words, God, This is and this is fascinating to think about, but we look around, and we can, we can get caught up just in living day-to-day -to -day too, right? Just getting in through the day, you know, the, the, the things at work, and then the insurance, and something else, you know, your kid hurts himself, you got to take him to the doctor, and all these different things, we're just getting by through the day, and we forget sometimes, you know what? God's got a whole plan. There's a whole thing going on, maybe say parallel to that, that is God's plan that we can't see unless we're doing what you're doing, what you're describing. Leaning on the Spirit and asking the Lord to help us see it. But you know, it's it's real fascinating. Information. It it's real. It's more real. It is, it is information yeah. that is valid and, tan and not tangible, per se. But, you know, when it says only the Spirit searches the mind of God, then it says, but He's giving us that. That's right. He's giving yeah. to us real information yeah. that, for some reason, He's allowed us to have. Yeah. Because he loves us, and he wants us to enter into it and and participate in it with him. You know, I've heard someone say, you know, there are two streams. Which one are you drinking from? There's the world stream, and then there's the there's God's stream. And the world stream is polluted, but it's a real stream and it's real information, like Joe's saying. And and but but it's and it's temporary. It's not permanent. It's not eternal. And then there's God's stream, which is which is permanent, which is real, which is really more real. Than the world stream, but that's not what you know, I'd love to put that sign up over Rice University's doors, you know, in Houston, but or over any university, right? Because the university thinks that their stream, their intellectual stream, is the real one. It's not. It's not. Do you believe that? God's stream is. That's why in James says, um, "Not to be double-minded, double-souled." You're receiving input from God's Holy Spirit as you read the Scripture, then you're receiving input from the world, just the opposite. We don't want to be double-minded. We want to stay in God's Word and let the Holy Spirit reveal to us as we mature in the Lord. And we can fill ourselves with all the stuff in the world, 
be double-minded and be weak as a Christian. Exactly. So we're, we're to be spending, like you're saying, spend time in Scripture, let go, ask God to teach us, not rely on it, don't trust the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. Amen. Because it'll get us in trouble. There's a way it seems right to man, there are the ways of death. It seems right, but deep down, it does seem right. something's not quite right there. So that's where our spirit, and God's spirit, teaches us. Amen. Amen. Yeah. So it's something to, to consider deeply, drink deeply from the wells of God's Word, right? He, that parallel again comes up in Jeremiah, right? Chapter 1, you know, drinking the, the broken cisterns versus the well of water of God's Word. You know, which one? The same. It's all through the Bible. Okay, good brethren. For no, for now we have received, we believers have received, and even these Corinthians with all their problems, he, he includes them. We have received n- not the Spirit of the world, we already had that, <laughs> right? We already got that in our educational system. We didn't receive it, but the Spirit who is from God. Why? That we might know the things that have been graciously, freely given to us. He just gave it to us by God. We could never afford them. We could never buy them. He just graciously, He said, this is what I want you to that's what he's talking the things that he wants us to enter into. These things we also speak. We apostles, I think here, not in words which man's wisdom teaches. We're not going to use man's method to, to explain God's things. We're going to use God's method to explain God's things, right? It's different. But which the Spirit, the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. I think that could be... Translated a couple different ways, but I think it's that using spiritual words to communicate spiritual truth or ideas, right? And then in verses, the, the uh, third section, we see in, well, no, we're still in 10 to 16, right? In verse 16, then, let me just say this real quickly. 16 through, I mean, 10 through, uh, where am I here? 14, is that 14? Fourteen through sixteen. <laughs> the numbers in this Bible just keep getting smaller. I don't know what it is. <laughs> it's really my eyes, but don't tell. <laughs> don't tell. Uh, but the natural man—that's the soulish man. Steve uh, Sukagos, That's what Steve uh, is is uh, talking about there. The natural man. He he describes here. There's two types of man, and this is either the, the believer or the unbeliever. The unbeliever is a natural man. This is one way to think of him. The Bible describes him. He's just natural. In other words, he doesn't have the Holy Spirit, right? He just he's just a natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. So that when you're sharing the Word of God, the gospel with somebody, don't be surprised that they don't receive them. Right? Because the natural man, if their heart is not being opened by the Lord, won't receive them. Why? For they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. So this is what I'm saying. The Spirit has to enable us. Why I'm calling it Spirit-enabled growth. Spiritual growth is Spirit-enabled because we need spiritual discernment and that comes only from the Holy Spirit. Right? But he who is spiritual, believers, judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We as believers, we're we're gradually learning more and more of that, but we already have it because the Holy Spirit's in us. Now let me just say real quickly then, in the first four verses of chapter 3, which flow out from that, we see the, the apostles' assessment of their condition. And this is, this is the diagnosis. The, Johnny can relate to this. He, he, this, is, this, is di- this is like a physician making a diagnosis, only he's making a spiritual diagnosis of their problem. Okay? He introduced the problem in chapter 1. What was the problem he introduced in verse 10 and 11 of chapter 1? Right? I've heard from Chloe's household that there are Divisions, schismata. There are divisions, there are schisms, there are contentions, there are rivalries among you. Okay, why? Here's where he tells us. Verse 1, chapter 3. I'm going to rush through this, brethren. I appreciate your patience. I'm, we were supposed to stop at, at 8. I'm just going to rush through this. And I, brethren, could not, and I, again, brethren, the same way he started chapter 2, continuation, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. 
Now I know there's a whole theological system that develops this as a third type of Christian, the so-called carnal Christian as a third, but the carnal Christian, he's saying as to carnal, there are only two types of people, there's spiritual and there's natural. The carnal Christian is not a third category. You can't say, well, I'm just a carnal Christian. I don't read my Bible. I go to church on Sunday, but that's it, because I'm just a carnal Christian. No! <laughs> that means you're not growing. Or maybe you're lost still. Or confused. There's something not right, right? But that person still has the mind of Christ. If they're born again. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's what you're saying. Yeah. That's, that's what it's saying. That's what, it, that's what he's saying. Wow. That's... Yeah. But they're not entering into it. I fed you with milk and not with solid food for until now. Even while I'm writing this letter, I mean, he's talking about he's been gone from them three or four years. Until now, based on what I've heard, you're still not able to receive solid food. And even now, you're still not able. And then he says, well, why not? What's the problem? What's the diagnosis? For you are still carnal. And then he tells them, why he thinks they're carnal. For where there is envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? You're not mere men. You're born again Christians. But you're acting like you're not born again. You're acting like a natural man. You're acting like an unbeliever. For when one says, I am of Paul, and another says, I'm of Apollos, are you not carnal? So, the theme here is to close. Spirit-enabled understanding. Right? All the way through here, he's really introduced one of the great sections in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 2, just so you know for your own reference further back, it's one of the great passages along with John 14, 15, and 16 that tells us of the ministry, one of the wonderful ministries of the Holy Spirit is to enable us to understand in the way of enlightenment and understanding that we might grow spiritually, that we might enter into the things that God has prepared for us before the foundation of the world, see? But God has ordained it. He set it up that we have to be dependent on Him. Right? And, and I like that. Because don't forget, God has not just saved us to a religion. He saved us to a relationship. He wants us to talk to Him. He wants us to draw near to Him. He wants us to depend on Him. And if He just gave us the power and said, here's the power, now you go do it, we'd never talk to Him again. right? Okay, I can handle this. I'll check in with you once a year or whatever, right? We wouldn't participate in the relationship. Well, verse 9 of chapter 2, a great verse to, to meditate on as you go on. The things that God has prepared for you and you and you and me, those that love Him. That's what we need to be increasingly more and more about. Thank you, brethren, for coming tonight. I hope, I hope it will be a blessing to you. you know, Bob and Judy are great to host us. What a blessing you all are. So either close in prayer or have someone close in prayer and bless blessings on the food too and our Heavenly Father we thank you for this message that we heard tonight we pray that each and every heart here would be able to take it home with them and, and meditate on it and we thank you for so much for your son mm. we thank you for all he's done for us and went to the cross and died for our sins Father we just uh, asked you to bless this food and uh, this time together may each and every one uh, return to their home safely. Yes. And it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Good job. Thanks, brother. <laughs>
Love you, brother Mal.